All right, what's up everybody? Welcome back to the microcast. I'm super excited to welcome Francis Sanzaro to the show this week to talk about his new book, The Zen of Climbing. And I recently read this book and it, for me, it was a total page turner um, because it combined, we were just talking about this yeah. before the show started, the intersectionality between spirituality, sports psychology, and performance. And at least that was my take on on the book and I I just couldn't put the book down. <laughs> I I read it in two in two I listened to the audiobook first <laughs> over two runs, totally just like knocked it out and was like, "All right, I got to buy a hard copy <laughs> of this book." And I got turned on uh to the book through a mutual friend of ours, Dan Mursky, who's a really high performing professional rock climber. I, I would say he's on the, the cutting edge of the best of the best to out there. Totally agreed. And yeah, he turned me on to this because we've had a lot of conversations about this exact topic. And I felt like I hadn't, I've read a lot of books on sports psychology. My, my personal interest in spirituality and philosophy and religion goes back to when I was in high school. Hmm. So I was like, oh, this is like oh, cool. super cool for me um, to get this Zen perspective. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I think there's so, this is through the lens of climbing, but I think there is so much that is applicable here. You can pretty much insert any anything you want, like your career or tennis or running or ski mountaineering or you know and so many of these concepts are going to carry over so that's why i wanted to have you on the podcast so we could dive into the good stuff um yeah totally that sounds excellent yeah man maybe you could share a little bit about your background um how did you come about like how did you stumble into this topic i know philosophy and religion is a big yeah like interest of yours and also you've been a lifelong climber at mm -hmm. high level mm -hmm. um how did it all come kind of coalesce into <clears throat> this book yeah it's, it's a, yeah that's a great question and uh thanks for that thanks for that intro man i'm really glad to be here i love this podcast it's always so mindful and thoughtful you know and it's it struggles with like really important stuff so oh, thanks glad to be here man um yeah i'm okay so Geez, I'm not going to try to bore anybody, but I, you know, so going back, you know, I think I've probably been thinking about religion and philosophy in a pretty deep way for almost as long as I've been climbing, you know, I've been climbing for probably about 30 years now. And since I was about 13 or 14, you know, and um, I have been, you know, really like a student of Zen. I mean, pretty, pretty seriously since around like 15 or so. And and, and these kind of things have been in my life just like parallel, you know, like I've been a, like a climber and I'm just like going for it, like super hard, you know, like I moved from the East Coast to West Coast to climb, you know, and I was on that track, trying hard goals, trying to send constantly. And, you know, along the while, I'm like in grad school and like getting a PhD in the philosophy of religion. And these two worlds never collided formally, you know, right. Um, but one time I was in Syracuse and I was with this professor, this guy, Ed Mooney, uh, he was an advisor. And, uh, and we are, he was talking to me about like tactile sensation stuff. And he's like, you're a climber, right? Like, what about all that stuff? And I was like, 
Yeah, like when you climb, you have to like use, you know, your, the obvious things, your fingertips, like your flesh, you know. But it's like you have to use your smell because if like you, unfortunately, if like you're on big walls and you smell like shit, actual human excrement, like you're probably on route, you know, yeah. <laughs> because like right. that's that's usually where like people have slept and, and it's like it's a good sign. Yeah. And he was just like fascinated by that. So anyhow, that kind of led to a book I wrote called The Boulder. Um, which I started to bring it together. But then I realized like that was more philosophy than bringing quite the the depth psychology that I was trying to work through in the Zen book. Mm -hmm. And that really, that book like just settled for a while. I got a lot of good feedback out in the world. I went through a a bunch of printing editions. And finally I was like, I think I'm ready to try to write this other book. Mm. And this is where I tried to bring in the psychology stuff and and not, not like do it like as from an academic, but as a practitioner, as an athlete, as someone who's really trying to think about it myself and like use myself as a guinea pig for this stuff. You know, like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't just put the book out there. I was like, how's this, does this affect my climbing? Like, am I on topic on this one? Like, am I wrong about this one theory? So yeah, I really, I really used it, you know? I think that's super cool. I love the idea of kind of like applied um, theory and, and like you definitely, what stuck out to me was the, how practical this book is, yeah. which is why I'm like, okay, Ashley, it's like, pick this book up because this can be kind of your companion along the journey of leaning into mastery and the process and finding, developing a healthy identity around sport and, you know, ultimately reaping the benefits of pursuing something long-term for the right reasons. The cool thing about, you know, also, you know, being the author of this book, you, you try to live these principles yourself in your own life. So you can really have that like first person perspective on how this works. And I think that, that if you're going to give advice to people, it's like, Hey, consider this approach. You also have to have tried, you know, like, sh- otherwise you're a fraud. <laughs> yeah, in my opinion. Like, right? What are you definitely, doing? Man? Definitely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Like the book is like player coach. It's from like the player the, from the coach, you know, but mm-hmm. also from like the couch, like in terms of like psychology, but it's also, I bring in like a lot of the history of philosophy in there and like try to, because to me, it all connects in my brain. You know, like I'm just, to me, it all is part of the same puzzle. Right. And I think you you're, you saw that too, as kind of we were talking about earlier. Like, yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's what's really cool. So let's talk about this idea of big mind and yeah. small mind. I think that plays like a really central yep. role in this book and is a great lens for athletes to consider their own training through. Can you, I don't know, without giving too much of the book away, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. can you walk people through the basic idea of big mind versus mm-hmm. versus small mind? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so I'm going to give credit to like Shunra Suzuki, who um, is kind of like got a book and talks a good bit about um, small mind and big mind. And, you know, as I was writing this book, so, and clearly he kind of like didn't, get the copyright on that. It's kind of like in that Zen tradition. He kind of clarified it with like a nice dichotomy there. And as I was writing the book, I realized, you know, it'd be really nice to have an anchor, you know, a a simpler way in to the material. And that felt like a really obvious thing, you know? Um, Okay. So big mind, small mind. Um, So there's a couple ways to think about it. I'd say, you know, maybe for those who are in like a meditative tradition or have, who have thought about that or familiar with, what that means, um, 
one way of looking at it is that let's say like big mind could be the water in the pool, right? It's kind of just the general medium through which um, we're all living. Like that's kind of like mind capital M that's kind of the bigger medium. Right. Um, but then, you know, when you're, it's not nose kid jumps in the pool, creates a bunch of waves. The waves are kind of the small mind, right? They are the kind of more pointed instantiations of big mind. Mm -hmm. And so we're still talking about the same medium, but we're talking about expressions. Um, okay. And so I'll, I'll make that concrete. Um, small mind, you could say tends to be like, uh, more judge. It has like a judgmental quality to it. Right. It has a, um, a, uh, discernment. It, it makes distinctions. Um, and it oftentimes is in service of like ego and self, you know, and, and that's like a key thing here, you know, and obviously in Zen and in Hinduism, kind of like any religion really will have some sense that this, you need to overcome self or ego or all this stuff, right. To kind of open yourself up. It's, it's fairly common. I don't want to say right. it's the same across all this stuff. Um, it's pretty universal across like Eastern kind of definitely, oriented religion. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely, they're pretty strong, you know? And so the, the, the idea is that small mind is always in service of our ego. So for instance, Francis wants to be like um, um, this awesome, great chess player, right? And actually I do. I want to be a good chess player. But nice. It's fucking hard as shit. <laughs> um, but so I want to be a good chess player. And what does Francis do? He compares himself to other chess players. He is constantly saying, you're not good enough. Like you need to go do this. You need to study your openings. You, you know, like your pawn, your pawn sucks. You have no good use of your pawn. So Francis goes and studies all this stuff. And those are instantiations of, of like awareness. What I'm doing is I'm like spending my awareness, right? Trying to accumulate these skills to support an ego and to support an individual. And so, you know, one way to think about small mind, it's always in service of kind of like a small self. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say, so the big self is where it gets tricky, right? Big mind, big self. This is where we're starting to get into like kind of the philosophy of religion and mysticism. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like booga booga or anything. It's just, it's, it's a pretty solid phenomenon that I think we all do experience, but it tends how it tends to get like talking about mysticism and philosophy, right. but it's this, it's this notion when, you know, we, we kind of drop away from our own sense of um, uh, self-importance. And, you know, when we're, we're able to really see our small minds at work, if you're, if you're truly have that clarity about, like what TJ is doing, like when it comes to you and so clear what you're doing, you know, the, all the stuff that's going in your mind and you can just see it the way you can watch a television and see all the characters and it's clear, then you're kind of getting closer to like that bigger mind. You're getting closer to the medium mm -hmm. and you're not attached on the small way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to go about it. And that's just two. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's super interesting and when we talk about, you know, how do we perform our best on a given day, you know, you're going out there for a send or, yeah. you know, maybe I'm going out to run a particular endurance event. Um, you know, how do we elicit the best of ourselves? And I have often thought and have been working to kind of gather and be able to articulate on this. But if you, if you have to, you have a small mind and a big mind or two selves as it can sometimes be described um where do you access your highest expression is it in the side of 
my body knows what to do and I know what to do? Or is it through this other side where maybe you're accessing more of a, like a clutch like state where you're kind of like forcing something to Mm -hmm. happen Mm -hmm. through very direct dialogue and commands almost like we have these two selves or two minds. The one mind is, can be very much the evaluator or the judge or Mm -hmm. the teller of what to do to the part of you that kind of has done the work and maybe instinctually knows what to do on the given day, but then when constantly evaluated, doesn't perform as well. I, you know, I kind of think about like the big mind being these infinite properties Mm. of you that exist here and now and before you were here and now and mm-hmm. after you're gone and you know this physical body you know it's this infinite essence that is always ongoing yeah 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 fair and something that i've often thought about there is like well what is that essence is what is the op- you know maybe you you can come at it from small mind okay mm-hmm. if we're judging performance we're thinking about Am I doing this well? Am I not doing this well? Am I I'm questioning myself? That comes from a place of lack. Yeah. And that's very finite. Like yeah. those ripples in the pool, you know, eventually they the waters smooth out. You know, they don't last forever, but the water is infinite. It lasts forever in that pool. So I've always thought about that concept being really interesting. The more you unlock the infinite within you, mm. Yes, there are very real limitations that are some of our bodies are more genetically gifted than others. And, you know, I can certainly think that I have no limits, but yes, I have very real limits and it's important to know what those things are. Um, But if you come at it with a small performance, with a small mind, you're going to get small results. So I've, you know, I find this concept to be really cool and interesting I think it's at the cutting edge of when we really look at a person, Mm. who are you? You know, well, I'm, I'm both of those things, you know, I'm a whole and complete soul and infinite energy. Hard hard to describe feels very metaphysical. Yeah. And then also, well, I do have an ego and I, you know, I do have a part of me that judges and discerns and, Mm you know, operates on this very finite plane of human existence. And okay, how do I make that work for me? You know, I think like, there's interesting books that talk about that, like the inner game of tennis is is a a classic that talks about, well, how do I use my ego in service of this more essential self part of me or this big mind part of me? Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, maybe I digress a little bit, but I'm wondering, you know, if the dichotomy, I believe yeah. that dichotomy exists. Yeah. Like that's yeah. my belief. <clears throat> Sounds like we're on the same page. You know, there's a small mind and a big mind and. <clears throat> yeah. Like, you know, so, I mean, we are, um, the, you know, the purpose I would say of, of making that distinction is never to be like attached to either one, you know, and it's, it's, uh, you know, we're, in, we're embodied, we're embodied animals, man. You know, like as, um, you know, uh, someone once said, you know, we're midway between a God and an animal, you know, like yeah. that's kind of just where we are on the spectrum, you know? And so we, 
you know, the, the purpose, I think, or the, the interest for me is, is like never to get sucked into big mind. Cause then you're like in a, you're just like in, in a cave yeah, and you're just zoning out and like, you're just out there, you're out to lunch. And, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, literally there's like traditions of like cave meditation and like these guys sure. will spend 30 years or living you know? in a monastery your whole life. Yeah. And, and it can kind of really stay in, in like a zone when they're, when they're kind of self the TJs or the Francis's aren't really popping into their life, not putting out fire now emails, you know? Um, but the purpose on the other hand is also not to just be super attached to our daily selves and, and constantly jockeying ourselves up against where we think we should be athletically, you know, where, where we others are athletically, you know, cause measuring up is a form of like, that's exhausting, right? you know, and that does not lead to good results as an athlete. And, I love your like intro to that because it's spoken like a true athlete, you know? And so, you know, you're, you're struggling with the real battle, you know, like it, the real battle is like how, you know, kind of like, I still want to get better as an athlete, you know, like how can I apply this? And so for me that, the, you know, the, the top line message is like, you know, it's about kind of the freedom to apply the mind that is best for the execution of whatever sport you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's how you win. Like, you know, like climbing is about doing moves. It's not about getting to the top. If you can do every move successfully, then you are going to get to the top. You right. know? But the thing is, is we fucking sabotage ourselves all the time. It's like, you know, we don't just have one mind. We have many different minds and fragments and streams, right? And we're self-sabotaging ourselves all the time, you know? And it'd be nice to think we kind of everything's in a row and everything inside of us is just like, you know, just like, <laughs> Okay, like let's go. I have TJ's best interest. Totally not the case. Right. We have panics and fears that are super irrational. And when it comes to, to being an athlete, when you let when those kind of like come into being and they really manifest themselves, you have a bad performance. You know, yeah. and to have a big mind or to at least inhabit that enables you to to see all of that working and put out the fires and execute. You know, you know, with clarity and in like in intuition and quick you know, and kind of like quick action. And I call it the toggle, right? The ability to kind of just like, okay, like I don't need an aggressive mind right now. I need something way more relaxed, you know? Right. And maybe for runners, that's, you know, like something's coming up or you're about to pass somebody and, you know, you, you kind of get that little adrenaline or something or someone's coming up on you, you know, and it's like, all right, you know, what's the best move here? Do I follow like this kind of com- super competitive thing in me and, and just burn hard and drain the tank now? Because you're going to pay for it later. Sure. You know? Definitely. You know? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, if you could step back, you know, and be like, okay, don't listen to that voice. Like that voice is, it's a good voice to have, but don't indulge it right now or something like that, you know? And really like, what's the best move? And that's, that's an experiential thing, you know, like books can't teach that. That's the product of practice, building awareness. Yep. I think awareness is probably the most important attribute to pursue as an athlete and, you know, in service of whatever outcomes you want to create for yourself, because without the awareness, you don't have the ability to discern with whether or not I should lean into my competitive side in this moment, or if that serves me better to lean into later in the race and, you know, hold on to that energy now, Totally, you know, or just understanding like, am I a little bit over the edge here going for this, you know, thing, maybe I need to hold back, conserve, you know, without the value, the value of experience there and gathering insights from that process to build your awareness as an athlete is going to, I think, help you in that moment. Like what I kind of hear coming out throughout this is like, 
flexible <laughs> flexibility in your mindset, not rigidity. And uh, uh, where it's like, okay, I can, I'm going to grab this tool here. I'm going to use this framework here. Um, you know, what's appropriate in this moment. And I think like the best athletes in the world, right. They're, they're pretty much able to use that toggle, like grab this. Okay. Relax, breathe here. Okay. I got to really push here. Okay. You know, what, you know, and then they can decide in the moment based on intuition, how they're feeling, past experience, what to do. I think, you know, when you think about like an onsite in climbing, you know, for people who aren't familiar with an onsite, like an onsite is basically you step up to a climb you've never done before and you start at the bottom and you finish at the top without falling. Yeah. And you do not know what you're climbing into. Right. Totally, totally dark. And that's like the ultimate kind of way of maybe checking in with Mm. your ability to be mentally flexible or to toggle between kind of the different attributes that you might have to employ as a climber in the moment. And I I think that there's a lot of parallels in running there. Like a lot of athletes don't always have the chance to go out and run a race course before they actually race it you know the Mm. race could be not close to home it involves too much travel they don't get out to do that recon Mm. okay so then you know you're gonna you're gonna have to adapt to the train as you go you know you you have to make see your pacing to be able to just really intuitively make your pacing and yeah 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 so i just i think that's super interesting and and let me just i'll just add one thing just to add add a sidebar on that you know so you know what happens in my own experience is is the more freedom I was giving my brain to kind of like toggle and move around, the more the voice of my body came to the surface, you know? And, you know, what that means is, you know, the it's funny, like to say the, the voice of the body is kind of like silly because for most of like athletic and like psychology, it's like the body just took directives from the mind. You know, that was like typically how it was. We right. got, we got yeah. an operator, we got some machinery. And we're kind of like our minds are just in there like moving shit, levers and like run fast, run slow, don't be a bitch, you know? <laughs> and, um, but like, what I can tell you is that, you know, the body will fucking do what it knows how to do to the best of its ability. If you just get out of the way, yeah, you know? And so for instance, like I learned this through like cultivating doubt, you know, and I learned this, I learned a really interesting lesson and I, I start off the book with that was, you know, I, I was trying to onsite something and um, I realized I had been like kind of overconfident. And so my mind is like, come on, like you can do this. Like the chains are so close. Like, come on, man. You know, like I got this. And it was such a, a moment of like um, obvious self-sabotage. And I'm like, oh my God, like my desire wasn't like an overwhelming desire, but my, my like drive to try to do that climb was like the predominant thing that kept me from doing it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try a different, you know, I'm at this game too long. You know, let me try something fucking different. And so I was like, all right, I don't think I can do this rock climb. I like, I can't do it. So I'm just going to give it an next try. And it doesn't matter. Like, I was just like, there's just no way I can do it. And my body was just like, totally believed it. My mind was like, it was over it, you know? And then the next try, I just totally floated this thing, you know, and it was pretty hard, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a difficult climb for me. And I got to the top and was just like, holy shit, that was one of the best times I've ever had climbing. Right. Why, why was that? Why is it like when I was convincing myself that I could not do it? Like, why was doubt so powerful? And that's kind of what got me started on the book, you know, because again, it was all about the levers, like cranking the levers, but the, I just let the body. So in other words, when I, when I cultivated doubt, 
I just let the body just, you know, my tendons and my, my deep sense of muscle memory and my ability to see a route that was in, that's in my kind of like DNA now as a climber for decades, right? I can just see a line of holds and be like, all right, just go there, get punched through the next 10 feet and then rest. And that's what you're going to do. And the body, like you can see that as an athlete, like as a mm-hmm. badass runner, you can see a trail an incline a hill, you know, a big thing. And you're like, all right, I kind of know what I need to do. If your body just knows it's going to instinctively slow up, slow down. It's going to attract a different cadence. And if you get out of the way, you'd be amazed of how intelligent your animal body is. It's so much smarter. I mean, there's an, there's an entire world of intelligence there that is untapped. And here we are in like the 21st century with this, like our science of like, oh, we just need to, the body like to do this, that, but like, no. Yeah. Know? The body's holding on to like 200,000 years of like, performance evolutionary capability like let that come to the surface and it's profound so let's maybe just follow that that thought stream there for a second because i think it's really interesting it it definitely brought back um a race experience that i had last summer where um i didn't have the for whatever reason stuff happened that the week of the race, I didn't have the time to do my normal mental prep Mm. for the race. Like Mm. I didn't have time to visualize, you know, executing in a certain way. I didn't have time to like really get my mind wrapped around, like I'm going to the edge tomorrow and this is how it's going to feel. And I'm anticipating all of these potential challenges and seeing myself Mm you know, in a, in a visualization process, seeing myself respond to those challenges in order to create the outcomes that I hopefully want to have. Like I didn't have this, like even up to like five minutes before the race, I was totally preoccupied right, get that, by yeah. other stuff. I mean, it's hard to stop. I mean, at that, yeah, at that late yeah. in the game, it's so hard. Yeah. And it ended up being a great teacher for me because it wasn't that I didn't care about the outcome. It was that, you know, I kind of like my expectations somehow in this process, I was aware that I hadn't done the preparation that Mm. I normally do. Mm. And I said, well, my expectations are, you know, I think I somehow reset my expectations Hmm. for the race to feel a certain way. And then, you know, the gun went off and, for me, that's always been a mental cue that it's time to focus on the process. Yeah. And you're not really, you know, in the act of doing it, I'm not thinking too much about the outcome. I'm more thinking about what are the things that are, what can I control right now? How do I feel? Yeah. Yeah. And I ended up having a big performance breakthrough. And I think it was, you know, along the same lines as like, it wasn't that I didn't care, but I, you know, sometimes we think we need to do more, 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 optimize, optimize, optimize Mm. to create the situation where we're going to have a strong performance. And like you said, you know, the brain is probably either our biggest limiter or our biggest asset in a performance environment. So perhaps by discarding some things, I created space for myself to perform really well. Like not exactly the same thing you were saying where you discarded like yeah. trying too hard <laughs> yeah, and really yeah, yeah. focusing on the outcome. And I discarded like that. I don't necessarily need all of the mental prep all the time to have set realistic expectations mm. for myself in a race or mm. whatever. Mm. 
But it, I thought that was really interesting because what is a powerful tool can end up just being something extra and maybe you just need to let something go. And I think that's the almost in the essence of the understanding the small mind and the big mind in a practical application where the yeah. small mind is always going to want to optimize or you need to do this better or, um, you know, and not necessarily, right? Like if you have a well-cultivated small mind and you're looking at it small mind somehow with the lens of big mind, you're going to be less maybe judgmental or evaluative. You might steer your inner dialogue to like, I have all the tools that I need to accomplish this goal mm -hmm. rather than I need to do extra here in order to prepare for this. Like that's a totally different framework or way mm. of thinking. One is like, I'm lacking something. One is like, yeah, I'm ready for this and I'm prepared. Both are an evaluation, but one is probably one, one of those is going to serve the outcome you want to create a little bit more than the other one, which is could possibly be a limiter. Yeah. And, and I'll just build off of that. A little. I, I love that. It's, I, I really like relate to that experience, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's super practical. And I, I think what, what happens too is when, you know, the body kind of rebels when you, when our minds really try to over control it, you know, with, with the goals and I expect it to do this, right. We have, a, we have a, like a little game plan and I'm going to push, but yeah. like your mind's not pushing, your body's pushing, you know, like literally it's like your body and the body rebels. And what I mean by that is it will not do its job properly when it feels like it is getting leveraged for something else, you know, that, that doesn't feel authentic. And, and it's a funny thing how that works, but, um, and, and what, what, what do I mean by that? So, you know, you could go to the data and say that, you know, um, and, uh, the small mind is kind of like what you could call almost uh, like an overactive mind, especially when it comes to race. Like when you're trying to race, like to have those little, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like I gotta go, go, you know, like all that kind of stuff. It's really distracting. Right. Yeah. And they've done studies where they've like uh, tested, I think people who bench press and they're trying to do like math problems in their brain. Um, and they found that people who were trying to do math problems in their brain while ex exerting maximum force, like could not actually exert max force. Yeah. This is such an interesting right? uh, like part your, in the book here. Your body, yeah. it, you're, it's like, it's, it's like literally like, your muscles and your fibers and stuff are not able to contract to their like physiological maximum when your brain is calculating. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like super interesting. Like, so what it really did for me is like when I'm up on a climb and I got a really hard move. Right. And I got, I really got to pull like full, full lats and full, just like full go for it. You know, that's at my limit. And if I'm having like these little, like uh, fragments of, of overcalculation, I'm not going to do it because that, I need that extra percentage. You know, if like my max contraction goes down 5% because of small minds, whatever coming in, then I'm just not going to be able to do it. And I, and so I, I kind of paint that in the book as like, that's the body rebelling. Uh, and that's like kind of a nice way to put it. There's another way to put it is it's just, we're just not physiologically made to be incredibly athletes and have overactive minds. Yeah. Like, it's just like, that's not how performance works, you know? Right. Um, and I think great performers, even people, even people that train great, like Courtney DeWalter, I remember hearing like, oh, well, I just kind of like follow my body. Yeah. You know? And so I'm, relaxed about it. I just, you know, yeah. whatever. And that, and, and I'm thinking of the Zen book. I'm like, exactly. Like, she's a master at listening to what her body wants. Because so much of us, like, we have our 18 month plan and it's like, 
fucking go hard and like you like there's no breaks and you know that's that's hard to get the body just on like a routine like that the mind is like yeah i'm down but the body will break down you know if you're not listening like it'll it'll get injured you're overtraining you know and yeah sure sure and i think there's many different reasons why the mind is like down for that right you're like "Mm, i like how that would look yeah you know externally maybe i like the perception of going for broke for 18 months how that would be perceived amongst my friends or the people who you know follow me on social media or in some way shape or form invested in my training like i think i really liked how that outcome would like it's a good op- be, it has good yeah, optics to right? it right like yeah and and then like at the end of the day like that doesn't line up right because where's the where are the intrinsic parts of that and running or training within the guidelines of a plan is pretty key to creating the physiological and even the mental adaptations you need to do mm-hmm. well at a specific event, but also having the mental, going back to that mental flexibility piece, the mental flexibility of being like, I can do less today because my body is telling me these certain things. And when I do less, ultimately that allows me to avoid cycles of injury, which you talk a little a, bit a about, about yeah. in the book. So, yep. and you know, ultimately, if I avoid cycles and injury, I'm more consistent. If I'm more consistent, I'm going to grow and learn and ultimately have the adaptations I want. Probably it's going to happen on a quicker time scale than I realize because I'm more consistent. And our brains almost always fall into that trap of like that doing that, what I just described is much harder to do than going for the thing that looks really cool. Yeah. Um, you talk a, a, a lot about like, different ways we go about failing in this book, which (laughs) I found to be really interesting. Um, It, you know, it reminded me of, there's a a quote in here um, from Serena Williams. Oh, isn't that a great one? I, yeah. And I have a tennis background. I played college tennis and Mm. I I grew up watching Serena play when she first got on the scene with her sister Venus. And I was like, wow, these two, you know, they're going for it at a, every point, giving their absolute all physicality and a level of play that, you know, tennis had never seen. And like, now we see it a lot more, you know, Nadal really modeled that in yeah. men's tennis. But, you know, at the time it was completely revolutionary, like their presence, particularly Serena's presence on the court. Mm-hmm. And when I like stumbled on this quote that, you had in the book and and I'll, I'll i'll read it here i don't like to lose at anything yet i've grown most not from victories but setbacks if winning is god's reward then losing is how he teaches us i was like wow her narrative yeah. around failure it totally serves the outcome she wants to create because she doesn't you know, I'm sure she acknowledges that losing's hard. Like she does. It sucks to lose. I don't like to lose. But what is losing to her? That's a learning opportunity. That's a building block, you know, and you talk a lot about like the different ways we self-sabotage ourselves with failure. You know, yeah. am I the kind of climber who always does a, a climb that's too hard and yeah. never succeeds? Or am I the kind of yeah. runner who always chooses a hundred miler? It never finishes because I don't have the experience or the base of training yet to support those kind of goals. Yet I always go for it anyways and fail. <laughs> and I, 
walk me through a little bit of your, of your thinking around that. Cause I think this is really important for <laughs> athletes. Cause like what in the book, we kind of like bounce around the idea of like flow and like having those high performance moments where we just let our bodies do what they know how to do. And I think one of the key factors in producing that mm. is when skill and challenge are in alignment. And so if you're choosing goals that are way out of your league, you're not going to experience those sensations. Yep. Um, and if you're choosing stuff that's too easy, you're not going to experience those sensations either. And I think like, you know, I can speak for, in my own experience as a lifelong athlete in many different disciplines that flow is one of the most enjoyable mm. states to have. And it's also elusive as yeah. well. And so like, if yep. you're not aware, you can't, it's very difficult to put yourself in the position. And, and I, I work with so many athletes who, you know, are constantly trying to find flow because they're, we, we got to talk about that before we talk yeah. about after flow, we got to talk about flow. Cause I have a big yeah. problem with that. You know? talk, yeah, let, let, let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's I, get, I would love to hear about what your, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting. Like, so about failure, I mean, I, failure is a fucking mystery, right? right? You know, and there is, I am totally unsatisfied with like an insider's athletes take on failure you know it's a that's kind of why i gave it so much lead time and here's the basic fact right you're an athlete you know i'm an athlete i've been at this game my whole life trying my best and we fail the large majority of the time in in like quote unquotes fail right and like, just just to interrupt for a second i feel like climbers fail more than anybody oh totally yeah because the better you get the more you fail like when you're right. starting you're like you're going up the grades easily it's like you know if you're a mile guy like going from 430 to 410 like hey you might get there quick but going from 410 to 402 or something is fucking hard yeah or under four is like and it might wow. take years like right you know i knew a college guy who you know a runner and he his whole life he got to like 402 and he tried for like five years a penn state guy full full um full scholarship track you know and he never got like sub four it took him 10 years to try to do it you know yeah so so from the outside you could say that him and i or whatever trying to always are just failing all the time so to me that's like that's a big problem. Okay. So how do you, how do you deal with that as an athlete who's failing so-called failing on, on quotes all the time? Well, the way to deal with that is to, is to not feel like a failure. Exactly. Yeah. That's the key. This is awesome. This yeah. is the key because there's a difference between like failing and feeling like a failure and athletes. We connect the two all the time. Like, fuck, I didn't do it. I'm a fucking failure. I feel like a failure because I didn't do it. Right. But that's not true because we're in athletics and stuff is out of our control conditions. The body is a fickle thing. It, it's going to like do something weird. It's going to trip when you're running. It's not going to do something when you're climbing, you're going to botch something and you're going to, you're going to be hanging on the rope and your head's going to be down. And it's like, okay, are you a failure or, or did, was that just a failure? Are you a failure, Francis, the person, or was that just like an executionary failure? And let's move on with it. Let's not get caught in it. Let's, figure out the source of that executionary failure and let's try to rehash that, you know? And that's a really important distinction because when you feel like a failure, man, the, the negative self-talk and the, the lack of motivation, right? It all spirals and all becomes part of your own story of being a failure, you know? Mm -hmm. And the great athletes from researching this book and talking to re-interviews, they're great, like, you know, this is a, but they're great losers. You know, they yeah. lose phenomenally. They don't take that to heart. They have that ability to like absorb that like 
you know, botched, whatever it is. And, and they're not getting stuck on that, on that narrative of them being fair. They're not like going home and like rehashing. I mean, some of them are, but they're not like ripping themselves out and staying all night up all night, you know? And like, cause, cause that doesn't lead to longevity and consistent performance, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, so to me, like, to me, you know, the first thing to do is to, is to really separate those two and to be able to look at your own failures the same way, ironically, as you would look at your successes. Like, wasn't that interesting? I just, I just got to the top or I just went on a phenomenal run. Detach yourself. Don't get pumped up about it. Don't get a sense of ego, you know? And if you can start detaching from your, from your successes, it becomes easier to then detach yourself from your failures mm -hmm. because we're so used to equating we're so attached to our failures and the fear of failure that it's just, it's just such a loaded gun, you know, big time. And to detach yourself from your successes, it's kind of hard to do sometimes, you know, because you're like, fuck, I want to indulge my own personal success and I want to feel good about myself. You know, like I just won, I just did my project. Like, Ooh, Francis is awesome. TJ's awesome. Right. But <laughs> if you stop indulging that you start to get to a place where you start looking at your performances in a new way. And it really changes the way you start your performance in the way you finish it. And what I can say is that you get more, you build consistency, you know, because your emotions are less in charge and you have less of yourself at stake. You're not leveraging your sense of self against an athletic performance. How crazy is that? You know what I mean? To say right. Francis is now like somewhat of a loser because he didn't, he had this one. I mean, that's like preposterous because we failed too much for that to be the case. You know, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And so, you know, um, I, I, yeah. So for me, that's like the key thing is once you, once you distinguish that. And then when, when you start to let go of both, what you find is like a really deep sense of joy that isn't attached to these weird successes or failures. You, you find the thing itself that you're doing, you've been doing your whole life. You right. know, it's like, I, I go back to my origin story, like climbing at first wasn't about winning. It wasn't about, it was just about, I just love this thing of moving over stone, you know, mm -hmm. and you as a runner, you probably just, there's something about the body running that you just, you initially fell in love with. And then you wrap like goals now comes around and a career around it. Like kind of, I did, you know? Sure. Um, but when you take, when you kind of strip away the, when you delete, you, you can rediscover the joy of that, of that doing. And, and that rediscovery is, is like the rediscovery of drive, you know, and of motivation. It's a really powerful thing. Um, and I, to be honest, I haven't, like felt like a failure, even though I've quote unquote failed a lot. I haven't felt like a failure in, in like five years, you know, ever since I've really embodied this and it's, and it's helped me be so much better as an athlete in all aspects. Yeah. I mean, I think that's <clears throat> huge. It's a dip, like a game changing way to look at this because if you consistently feel like a failure, when you don't achieve the outcomes that you want, that you're going for eventually that's going to erode your sense of identity and it's going to make it very hard. It's going to call into question your motivations exactly. and what you're doing anyways. And you're going to start to have what I call reckoning moments yeah. where many athletes of all levels have these reckoning moments where they start to realize, okay, why, why was I pursuing this? Yeah. And I'm going to bring up two examples because they're just awesome. Like, you know, I always thought that, if I was like a badass and like I was able to win a gold medal because you couldn't climb in was in the Olympics when I was young, but it was always a dream, right? Sure. I was always thought, man, if I get a, like a fucking gold medal, I would be like so happy. I'll be like complete person, you know? And um, 
I never had a chance to even compete, which doesn't say I wouldn't even made it because I probably wouldn't have. But, you know, so I started reading like Michael Phelps and Paula Ono, like some guys who have been very vocal about their depression. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? We've got some seriously decorated guys yeah. and gals. And they're like telling how their life sucks. And they're like, <laughs> and their life did suck. Right. right. So you got sure. Phelps winning eight gold medals and he's going home and he's a depressed person. And yeah. that to me was like, yeah. holy shit. Like, how's that possible? Right. Well, the thing was, it didn't, those things didn't mean anything to him because they were for the wrong reasons. You know, he, he, like Apollo Ono talks about his fear of losing. Like that was his primary motivator was his fear of losing. That is such a weak framework right? to pursue any goals on because that fear of failure is going to keep you from actually performing totally. at the highest level. And, and, this, and this is a guy who went so far and so deep. Imagine the joy he could have had oh. and how much better if right. he got rid of that. And was and, and say, it felt so the same thing. It's like these, these athletic goals, were, they're ultimately empty. Like they, they don't mean anything to these individuals. And like, as, as athletes that are not quite gold medalists or not that level, like we should really listen to that. Like we should take that to heart and be like, okay, stop attaching myself to whatever that external validation is and focus on the thing itself. Yeah. Um, but that to me was like a really, it's, it's called way to gold, you know, um, the documentary with Phelps and it's really right. revealing and I got to give him credit for like, just, you know, I don't know, just getting out there and, and bringing this to light because mental health and athletes and success and outcomes, it's all kind of in that film, you know? Totally, man. I love this way of looking at failure because like you mentioned before, you're going to probably fail a lot more times than you're going to succeed. <clears throat> when you really take a look at your life through a 30,000 foot view, yeah. that's just, that. that is the essence of life and really how you respond in those moments, the narrative you create around that can largely dictate how successful you are in achieving the outcomes you want later. And I know I'm, I'm talking a lot about outcomes and you're talking a lot about process. And I think oh, we should both of these too, things yeah. are really integral yeah. to one another. And, and, you know, my personal viewpoint is yes, we need to have joy in the act of doing and, you know, moving for movement's sake running for running sake, climbing for climbing sake, because of the intrinsic value that that has, you know, like my, my view is like, okay, running is a vehicle for self-expression. You know, I'm a human here and a human experience, but I'm, I'm really a spiritual being. I have these particular gifts and a way and an outlook. How do I express who I am? Well, I run, I coach, I have these mm. different things that I do. Those are ways for me to express myself. And that is fully intrinsic. And when your fear around failure, if I fail, I feel horrible, you know, like I don't feel whole and complete. I feel like this upholds a narrative around I'm not good enough. You're totally taking, you're not only going to discover like my motivations were extrinsic. I was yeah. hoping that this would fill something that I lacked. Like yeah. I needed to win. I need to win because I'm not, I don't feel whole and complete as I am. This is where I think big and small mind like comes in mm -hmm. like really powerfully because you, you fail You are a failure in small mind. Only in small mind. Right. And right. that right. is like, or ego, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm, I think a lot about like what hurts when you fail. Well, my ego hurts. And that's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but like, did I fail and did I win? You know, just thinking about those concepts. No, because 
I am whole and complete as I am with or without these things. Like, and there's, I think there's different Mm -hmm. framework to look at that. And for some people that's going to feel, wow, that's out there to think about, or that's too metaphysical. Mm -hmm. But if you use the framework of small mind and big mind in big mind, you, you can't ever fail. Mm -hmm. And you also really can't ever win. You can only, you really just have experience. Yep. And I think when I really like kind of your practical framework for developing like a healthier relationship around that, um, I mean, gosh, athletes who are listening to this, that part of the book is going to resonate because the healthier your relationship with failure, the more resilient you're going to be. And, and it's a scary thing too. Like I'll, I'll be Super honest. Super scary. I've heard some people say like, well, you, you know, like, you're an older athlete. And so you're just like at a point in your career where you can just like, not like think about perform, you know, or like, yeah. And let me tell you, I mean, well, I, of course there's truth to that. I'm an older athlete, you know, not like in my twenties, but what I can tell you is that you'll climb better or you'll do your sport better as a result of letting go these things that you think are going to make you better. And that's like, that's kind of the irony. And that's why I wanted this book to be practical. So I wanted athletes to, this isn't about just like, soul surfing man and like giving (laughs) up and like fuck my pb yeah you know this isn't about that this this is about really reorienting yourself and you know figuring out a new relationship with that that will ironically the more you let go it will help you perform better and that and that's just kind of like it's not even a paradox i think it's just the way the body works and you know and, and part of the the big mind small mind is like now i'm at a point like I think you said it really well. Well, TJ can't fail in big mind or there's, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's on the money because, you know, you can, I can see Francis's story. I can see when I started climbing, I can see all these things develop and how all these things that attach themselves to my climbing or to my athletic career, you know, I can see how I started to invest myself in them and it snowballed and it became this thing, you know? Right. Um, And and then at some point you got to realize that like, you know, the hardest thing to do to do is to do your sport. And you people think I can just go out and run and I'm focused. I'm in the zone. Like, no, you're not, dude. Like it is way more rare and it's yeah. way harder to just do that thing. It, it, it's just way harder. And I'll just leave with one anecdote. You know, like it's, it's well known that to follow your breath for 10 seconds without an interrupted thought can take you years of practice. Yeah. Sit down. I mean, to all the listeners, like sit down to, after this and be like, I'm going to prove that dude wrong. Go ahead and sit down and just follow your breath for 10 seconds without a distracting thought. My, my answer is good luck. You know, it's going to take a lot of time. And it's, it's because it's when we do in our sport, imagine how distracted we are. We're not even trying to be focused. So we have so much coming in us that we may not even know, you know, and that's all interfering with the performance. And it's really hard. To, it sounds simple, but it's really hard to do, man. You know? Oh, totally. And, but it's also so cathartic and you discover, it's like, you know, you opening a, a new room and you're like, man, where's this been? You know, it's profound, you know, cause you're listening to your body better and it's just more joyful and, and flow is like, if maybe this is our segue. Yeah. Flow. Like, yeah. Let's go. I mean, you know, like you, you get into a place that I wouldn't say feels like flow, although it probably is, but it's just a, it's a place of that kind of like, um, where you're, you're able to deal with all the setbacks and stuff so smoothly that you have that sensation of effortlessness. And I actually talk a lot about effort in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. because people talk about, oh, it felt effortless. Well, that's bullshit because 
you required a lot of effort to do anything. Yeah. There's no yeah. such thing as effortlessness. Right. There's no way that 80 miles into a hundred mile yeah. or you were in your flow state, it felt effortless. It's impossible. Like, yeah. Let's refine our language, man. I think that's, <clears throat> you know, again, I was like, yeah, like reading that part of the book, I was like, you know what? Francis is a really good point here. <clears throat> like, cause even when I have like the, the, the deepest connection between mind and body and feel the most interconnected or alignment, I'm still exerting really hard. (laughs) It doesn't feel good all the time, to be honest. Like it kind of hurts. Like, am I going to throw up? I don't know. Right. Be curious. (laughs) Yeah, totally, man. So yeah, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, how flow plays a role in this book and how effort, you know, your take. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I think you said something earlier and I, I just like to underline it because I think it's important. You said something like, um, it could have even be when we were talking before this, but you know, people get attached to flow. Right. And in the sense that there's a kind of a cottage industry around seeking flow as an athlete. Like this is your primal mode of high performance, right? Getting into the flow, like no mind, zone, blah, blah, flow. Like it's all kind of in this world of thing thing we should aspire to, top of the pyramid stuff. But I mean, here's the real deal is that for, for the majority of athletes, like we have to high perform in a place that feels pretty awkward and uncomfortable, you know, and we have like, we have to do things that are really, you know, um, that rub against the, that are, they're totally, that don't feel good. Like there's no flow, like, but you still have to perform in this kind of so-called non-flow state. Like again, Phelps, when he talks about winning this race and his goggle, like fucking comes off within like the first lap, he's got to swim three laps. That was a crazy story. Right. So yeah. it's like, if he would have been like, man, I'm not in my flow, like nothing's going right. You know, like I'm done, but that's not what he did. He's like, he was able to step back and be like, okay, I still need to really perform highly, even though every expectation, even though kind of the worst case scenario happened, you know, I still need to push on. And that's the place we need to get as athletes. Of course, like flow's great, man. Like I get it pretty freak, you know, I, I, I get to those moments when, man, that's just, they get that, that feels great and it's good. But I think we could really drop it from our vocabulary and be just fine, you know? And I think we need to learn how to deal in adversity with excellence and execution and not getting stuck in panic, like mid race, Yeah, you know, and not, you know, that's, that's the place we need to go. I mean, cause flow's elusive, man. Like, so elusive. It's like, you know, what am I chasing? A butterfly in like this giant, you know, mountaintop? Like, that's great. Go chase the butterfly. But like, as an athlete, you want to perform better, you'd be much better off like f- sabotaging yourself on a run, like dropping your shoelaces or like, you know, forgetting your food or mm-hmm. like doing something that really challenges your comfort zone. And how do you react? Do you shut down? Do you panic? You know, kind of doing those little things. I think. That to me is where, you know, um, we need to kind of innovate in our field and not get so attached to creating the conditions for this kind of thing of, of effortlessness. Because again, like you said, there's no such thing as effortlessness in athletics. There's only the sensation of it. Yeah. And there's no such thing as no mind. Like in climbing, there's this thing, you know, like the zone, you have all these people like zone. I was like, no mind. I was in this like primitive like state of just <laughs> whatever. And like, that's impossible. Like your mind is totally going when you're doing something right yeah um but the but what happens is is that nothing came to the surface that was fragmented from like your kind of athletic performance and that's why it felt effortlessness because 
your body didn't say, hey, like you need to try really hard or like you need to slow down. Nothing kind of bubbled up. And so it was never called like flag to your conscious attention. And that's what people mean by zone or like they felt like they had no mind. But in half, in reality, their body's just reacting. It's constantly calibrating, you know, mm-hmm. it's like something puts a, a heavy weight on the right scale. And all of a sudden something's, you know, it's counterbalanced and it's just happening beneath your like subconscious awareness. And that's what you want. You know right. what I'm saying? Is you want that state. Um, but that's hard to get. It takes a lot of work and prep work, a lot of trust. Your body needs to learn how to uh, trust itself. And, you, you know, your mind needs to learn how to trust your body. And, you know, it's really tough. It's like a, it takes a lot of time to get there, you know? Totally. I, I've <laughs> often an, an interesting experience that I've had in in my last few races is feeling like I I ride like a, a wave of non-judgment where mm. thoughts come in and thoughts come out. And there's no, that there's nothing other than a thought is a thought and a feeling is a feeling like I feel tired or I feel nauseous. Okay. And sometimes the wave starts to crest a little bit Mm. and enter the the trough where you're like, maybe I'm starting Mm. to end up in that back on that, you know, I would call it maybe more small mindedness where maybe that's starting to become a judgment. I'm starting to be less curious and then just getting like letting that wave just continue forward. That to me is a product of mental skills mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I've developed, yep. not a product of flow state. Yeah. And I think what, what I've seen is athletes rely on a combination of mental tools to perform at their best because you inevitably the effort <laughs> is so high. You're not always going to feel your best the whole time, especially when we talk about endurance events that last, you know, several hours, many different iterations of how you're going to feel are going to come and go. And so you have these moments where, okay, I'm feeling like really flowy. Like it's just happening for me right now. Everything's clicking. I'm feeling so good. Just eating up mileage and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, time is just going by. I'm not, you know, it's crazy. And then all of a sudden I'll have a moment where it's like clutch state. Like I have to force the state and manufacture it because Mm. I, you know, I'll start to like have an energy dip or, and I'll have to rely on other tools. Like what are my performance standards or, Mm. you know, what are my process oriented goals here? What are mental tools? What self-talk can I bring out? Which brings me to a point where you talk a little bit in the book about self-talk and self-help and how you had an interesting take mm. on that. Mm. And I really wanted you to share, to share that with, with the audience, because I, I just felt like, what are these like little pep talks we give ourselves before events? Like th- yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. this like goes right into this conversation of like confidence and is that Oof. overrated? Yeah. Right. Right. It's a big one. Yeah. I mean, you got time for a few more minutes. Oh, here? for sure. Dude. Yeah, I know. So I love, I love it. You're just spoken like a true athlete, man. It's awesome. Um, okay. So like for me, you know, I, I started to, uh, so the inner game of tennis is by Galway is a great book. Yeah. And great book. He, he definitely, it's a really good book. I really highly recommend it. He talks a lot about, uh, voices and language, uh, self-talk of athletes, you know, and I, I found that to be true in my own climbing, even my own running, you know? So for instance, like, you know, there's, there's a couple of hills around town that are really steep and hard for me to keep running, you know? And you get to the point where you're just like, your quads are burning, you know? And you're like, fuck, like, and then 
what I noticed is that there was a voice inside of me that says, come on, man, like you can do it. Like, like, come on, you know? And I'm like, isn't that interesting? Like, why, why did that come? Is it because I doubted that I could do this thing or is it because my body was shutting down and needed that extra spurt? What I learned is that it was actually doubt. So my body, I mean, the body experiences fatigue, right? You know what I'm saying? Lactic yeah. acid builds up, like that happens. But what is unnatural is the doubt that creeps in and say, you're not going to be able to make, do this thing. Right. You know, and it is not my belief that, you know, that kind of like pep talk is essential for someone who's a very centered aware athlete. I mm -hmm. think when we, when we unconsciously feel doubt, that's when the, we feel the need to have confidence, Yeah, you know, and it only, it only comes in in a lack. Um, because you said when you're feeling good and everything's great, it requires no voice. Just I'm cruising on the trail and it's all good. You don't need to activate the voice. It, it's only when we're getting these cues, maybe from the body, especially because they're, they're real, you know, biological things are happening and we're getting tired. Our muscles and tenders are getting worn down. And so we think that we can like talk our body through it. But in reality, the body doesn't need that, you know, and in reality, what you have to do is I think for some people, I'll, I'll step back a little bit. I think it can help as a short-term hack. Sure. It, it sure can. Like, fucking come on. Like, you know, like weightlifters, like, you know, and you, you think they think that they're like getting so pumped up. That's going to help them. And I don't want to take away that. Like, yeah, that's kind of like the clutch state of yeah. like, I'm going to manufacture this right now. You yeah. know, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. I don't want to take that away, but I want to paint like another, you know, the other option is that when you, you uh, introduce confidence or when you uh, introduce doubt, you, introduce dichotomy, mm -hmm. you know, and distinction into your performance and value judgments on how TJ's running and how he's feeling. And, and that's never good, you know, because right. that complicates the performance and that's what you don't need to perform like really well. And um, I think confidence is one of the most overrated things in sports. And yeah. I can tell you um, that I've done some of the hardest things and my own personal goals and some of the hardest things have been done in the climbing world with like zero confidence. <laughs> You know, yeah. And these climbers are on the record saying, like, yeah, you know, like I did this thing and this Adam Andra, you know, climbed some heinously hard thing. And he's like, man, I just felt like shit that day, you know? And then so that comes like, I started to think about that. And I started to go through all these examples and I found them like everywhere, you know? And what that told me is that you just don't need to have that kind of confidence. Like, I can do this. You don't need to pump yourself up. Like, it's just not doing anything, you know? In fact, like, what you're doing is you're just, getting in the way because an overconfident person makes bad decisions. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I, I got this, like, you, you know what I mean? It's like you as an athlete, you know what that means. I don't, yeah. I don't even have to say it. And so it's better to not have both, but you know, I'll admit it's, it's kind of like, it's hard because when you get low and your reserves get tough, that's when the internal talk talk starts. But that's also the point where you just need to let your performance play itself out. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to lie down the trail and be like, Oh, I'm good. You know, there has to be some kind of effort mechanism that's driving you in some deep way. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because the body gets tired. The natural thing to do is fucking lay down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's just human nature. Oh, yeah. That's what it's telling you to do. So I'm not saying listen to that. I'm saying, you know, there's 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 a deep, deep, deep voice, the love of that sport that I think will that I feel confident will take you through, you know, that will carry you and um, it'll carry you with a lot of. A lot of grace, you know, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of staying power. And um, kind of like you said, there's so many ups and downs. If you just get attached to all the ups or the downs, then, you know, it's just it's such a such a 
inconsistent performance in race. You your know? experience is dictated by your purely by your emotional state. Exactly. It's no longer in your control. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly where you don't want to be. That's not where you want to be. I think I like Courtney DeWalter in the pain cave is so great. And it applies here so well, because she's famous, obviously, for being able to keep going, right? Yeah, you know, and she talks about her in a pain cave, and she's just fucking chiseling, chiseling away. But what she's doing is she's getting to a place where she can see Courtney. I mean, that it's a visualization that, that's mm-hmm. appearing to her in times of great suffering, and it's happening because she's because her she's putting that pain into a place that's not affecting her performance. Right. That that's what's to me is phenomenal about it. She's like getting she's inching back away from her small mind, which is really suffering, and she's able to say, "Oh, look, isn't that funny?" You yeah, know, like, yeah. look at that dipshit, you know, carving <laughs> in this little cave and she's making the cave bigger and it's, it's phenomenal. Um, so she's not, she's not, she doesn't have to be in the cave, you know, she's outside that cave. And that's the thing when you're in the cave and you're just like, and you, and Courtney's just in the cave and just in the pain, that's really disheartening as an athlete, you know, because you do really want to quit and give up and you may not consciously think you want to quit or give up, but your body's already listening to those cues. Yeah. You know, it's already like making the moves to stop a good performance. Right. And, you know what I'm saying? It's like kind of already laying the groundwork for a shitty, a shitty, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so the more you can step away from those small, those small waves or those small mind and um, like, yeah, the, you'll get a more consistent, long lasting performance with, you know, a deep sense of satisfaction afterward, you know? Yeah. And, and something that I also kind of heard mixed, mixed in there was that connection back to, you know, what's the purpose behind this? Why am I doing this? Those more intrinsic motivators that, you know, long after, you know, once you're really deep in it, the external motivators, yeah, they're important, but they, they matter so much less than Mm. what you feel within you, you know, how are you connecting to this experience? Why are you doing this in the first place? Um, you know, something that I've, I've, chatted with Courtney, but I've never gotten Mm. into the deep stuff with Mm. her. Just more like, Mm. you know, you know, hanging out. Um, It's one of those things where I can sense from her, a driver for her is a deep curiosity. Yeah. Which I think is to me that that really speaks to big mind Mm. where it's like, what am I capable of in this moment? You know, if I'm, how much can I chisel away? For how long can I chisel? Like yeah. I'm going to chisel as long as I can. I'm going to just I'm gonna keep sharpen chiseling. the tools when they get dull and keep going. Right, and so I think that that perspective um, can be a really you know powerful one, especially when we're talking about confidence. Like what are like I just like I cringe thinking that like you know okay in previous coaching iterations of myself i've talked a lot about well how do athletes build confidence and mm. i really just didn't have the language to, to say like well we build competent we build confidence by becoming competent in what we're doing mm. having experience relying on that experience and the intuition and the awareness that comes with it we're not really creating confidence because confidence is just a belief you have about your ability to accomplish something that is based totally on a feeling can change day to day, like based on, you know, whether you had enough coffee or not. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, why would you want to base performance on something like that? You know, what are our anecdotes? What can we focus on? 
instead of focusing on how do I manufacture or build up confidence in myself, the the two races that I raced Mm. um, and did very well at my first international podium that I had this past year, I had no confidence. I love that. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I had no confidence because like I had had a lot of setbacks before that event. Mm. I had questions about my health before that event. And so it, it, you know, interesting anecdote from, you know, from my experience, but it put me in a very curious mindset Yeah. where, you know, I had curiosity working for me and I had the competence of a lot of previous racing experience. And, you know, I did my training to the best of my ability. Um, was it similar training that I've done in the past, more training than I've done in the past? Not necessarily. It was different yeah. training, yeah. but I had done my training to the best of my ability those are the things, you know, I kind of leaned on those things rather than being like pumping myself up and saying, you know, I can do this, um, you know, let it unfold as it's supposed to unfold. Mm. You know, that's kind of something that I usually, a mantra of mine mm. or whatever. But I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think about how do we become less reliant on confidence? What kind of state should we move ourselves into? Yeah. You know, so... My my take is as I am an experimenter and kind of we started off, you know, I was like, just use yourself and experiment, stress test this shit. Like, don't just believe me. Right. Like, I want you, if you're whatever sport you do, I want you to go out there and and try to um if you're if you tend to think you're a confident person, then try to self-sabotage yourself and try to convince yourself you can't do it. And and see what see the results. See mm-hmm. for your, see for yourself, you know? Um and and, and just kind of go from there because what will happen is like, you could convince yourself all day. Like you can't ride a bike. Fuck. There's like, you know, you could try all day, but guess what? The body knows how to ride a bike. You know, yeah. you get on your bike, you're going to steer and pedal. And, and when you get rid of like the doubt and the confidence, that's when you start to have it inhabit that really interesting space. Um, so I think, I think the next time practically, right. Okay. So what is your, when you think about when your athletic goals or when your athletic fantasies like, you know, come in your brain throughout the day, like they do mine constantly, you're like, you know, I'm just going to climb this, I'm going to climb that. You know, what are you, what are the contents of that, that fantasy? Is it like, are you at the top? Are you at the bottom? Are you failing? Are you just doing it? Like, what are the contents of that? And then as you get closer to like, you know, that training day or that race, like what's going on in your mind? You know, what, where, where is your mind? Is it at the finish line? Is it everyone at looking at everyone else who you feel intimidated by, you know, and really just starting to study what your brain is doing. Like, what is your mind doing? How is it sizing everything up? You know? And when you start to do that, you'll, you'll start to see your own kind of like unique pattern of, mm-hmm. and your own complexes that you're bringing to the table. And, um, and, and that's kind of, I think, you know, like the, the best way to kind of embody some of this stuff is to really turn the lens on yourself Stop overtraining that extra, you know, five to 10 sets at the gym are going to do you nowhere near as good as what I'm saying. And what I think, you know, you're saying as well is starting to figure out where your mind is going, you know, before all this stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so that would be like, you know, like a practical, um, just like experimenting, experiment with, with that. And I think, you know, some, some ways to do that is especially getting out of your your uh, your comfort zone a little bit and shaking up how you react, you know, when you got your comfort zone. I think that's really right. important. You yeah. know, I think that's really essential. And any athlete has to make decisions on the fly really quick. 
Um, and, but not all people are really good at that. And some of the best athletes in the world are really good at making game time decisions, you know, and you could, you could say that like, you know, Messi, um, with soccer he had like incredible field vision because he was able to just like really detach himself from the field a little bit and make these incredibly intuitive calculations on people running and, and yeah. receiving the ball. And he could just do it. He could just like done. Right. And he trained his body to do it. And, and so, you know, that's, that's a, a skill that top athletes have that I think we all need to cultivate. Um, and I'll just say one thing about running and motivation. And um, I'm a deep believer that, um, deep motivation. I'm a deep believer. I am a, <laughs> a big believer that deep motivation is, is by far the best kind of motivation. And uh, studies have proven that, you know, a lot of coaches will say that, you know, it's, it's not wanting to win the gold medal. It's just for the love of, of that movement. Yeah. And that, that's what carries you through everything. And I think of, you know, runners like Francois de Hain or, you know, like Killian, those, when I hear those guys talk, when you really slow down, and you don't dismiss, oh, I just love to be in the mountains, you know, and you really like hear them talk. They're really saying they just love to be in the mountains, you know, like truly like that's, you know, I've listened, I listened to like so many to try to see if I could catch them, you know, and a lot of interviewers are like, well, don't you just want to beat the guy? Don't you want to win? And they're like, eh, I mean, it's kind of nice, but I just love to be out in the wild, you know, and when you just love to be out in the wild and running is just a medium through which you get that, that's a pretty powerful motivator you know? And what, what do you make of that? Do you say that they're genetically gifted and that's why they can be so relaxed or is it they're that good because they're that relaxed? Right. You know, I, I think it's the latter, like, you know, in the climbing world, it's the same way. You talk about Chris Sharma or whatever. It's like, they're that good because they're so detached from those outcomes because they're just out there for a great day, you know? And of course they're competitive in a sense and they want to, you know, Killian of course wants to win, but it's, it's, it's different. You know what I'm saying? It's different. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, this is a great, a great place to, to just chat for a couple of minutes and in yep. wrapping up here, something that I felt you were kind of positing throughout this book and which felt like a very Zen principle to me, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Zen <laughs> isn't my area of expertise, but it, you know, it also feels like Taoist, which is something that I've spent a lot of time yeah. um, studying and reading that, you know, the over attachment to the outcome is going to be the thing that bites you hardest in the end. And what you're just mentioning with kind of with uh, Francois and Killian, it's well, well, what's, What's the primary motivator, you know? Well, perhaps it's a really great day in the mountains. And for them, you know, they have their own specific definition of maybe what a really great day in the mountains is, you know, probably has something to do with pushing their limits, yeah, yeah. exploring their potential, moving fast and challenging terrain, you know, like being in a competitive environment and field. Like I'm sure that, you know, the list is deep and that has deep meaning mm. for them. But once they get into doing the thing, where do you think their minds are? Yeah, that's it's I think their minds are really just absorbed in in that task in a way that other people are not able to get into, you right. know. It's kind of like, I don't know, what's the word? Um I mean, fully embody. I'm trying to think of like, you know, just a way um of of describing that. But I I mean there's no doubt that they have like a harmony at, at working across so many levels. And I liked how you said 
that there's a lot of motivators going because that's totally true. You yeah, know, you yeah. can't take away the competitive nature from any of these guys because they're, you know, there is that. But I think what rises to the surface, you know, what what in the end is is left, you know, when the, when all the other things have kind of burned off, like are these like heavy rocks in the campfire, you know, and the big rocks in the campfire after all the kindling is burned off are, you know, a real deep love of the mountains, a deep love of like pushing themselves. And I think they're finding a lot of deep joy in there. And yeah. that's not, that's not like an ecstatic joy, like a happiness. It's just like, this is kind of what I was meant to do. Yeah. You know, and, and very few people really reach for that, you know, um, because I think people don't seek it because a lot of times it's not in everyone because you're doing athletic for the wrong reason, you know? Sure. You're just trying to puff yourself up or posture or prove something to yourself that you're good at something. And I think that's why Zen can be a little scary because you start to, um, really question your motivations for doing things. And right. Like, who are you yeah. without the outcome? Exactly. Like, What's Francis? Is Fran like, Francis, do you really love this stuff? You know, like, are you sure? And I went through a lot of years where I really took a look at it. And then I came out on the other end and was like, man, you know, I loved it so much more in such a deep way. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's what I think those guys are going through. I, to be honest, I, you could also say they're probably not going through a lot. <laughs> Yeah. In, in the same way. They're not questioning themselves. The why not worried about winning They're at some point, you know, they're late in the race, their bodies like beat down. Like when I'm out in the mountains after you, you just get into that kind of like animal, um, uh, animal movement, you know, when you're just kind of, you're still in it and it's just, it's really pleasing. And, um, and yeah, there's just not many ruffles. Like peace is the absence of, you know, fragmentation. Yeah. It's not something that's added onto your life it's something you find when you take stuff away. And that's, what's interesting. Like, you know, you don't add your way to peace. You know, you can't like add all this shit to your life and, and find like, you know, enlightenment or, or find a sense of solitude or, you know, find a sense of um, uh, centeredness. You have to take away to find it. And that's yeah. what I think is going on with those guys. I think they've been able to strip a lot away and uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to be. I wonder if the, the act of going that deep, helps to strip a lot of those fragments away like you mentioned kind yeah. of going into that you yeah. know more animal yeah. side of of mm -hmm. who we are um you know accessing you know kind of like those those pure mind streams that like exist in in the act of really doing something and then have been doing it for many hours over yeah. and over again in like a really difficult situation kind of like mm. it kind of like strips strips it all away in a sense and you kind of have to just channel something maybe greater than yourself even i feel like it is a very you could i'm curious well what do you think do you think that's yeah. a very that's yeah. like a very big mind way of being like what yeah I, so i think you're on to something man I, that's a great i'm glad you brought it up you know um because I think what you're talking about is using, let's call it exhaustion as, yeah. a, as a tool. Sure. Right? Because it is a tool. And some people use hallucinogenics, right? Right. Um, and then in, throughout the history of philosophy and religion, of which I've spent a lot of time studying, exhaustion is an extremely valid and well-used tool to strip away small mind and to tap into um, whether you're talking about like great spirit, you know, or big soul. Um, hallucinogenics are another tool that are commonly used. Rituals incantations you know so these are all tools and i think you're right i absolutely would say that over and some sports are more privileged than others to get us into these states if you look at like football i'm not convinced that the average linebacker is going to talk about 
you know, like a, a deep sense of spirit. And so like, I just don't yeah. think they are. I think the sport is different, but I think endurance sports, when you just wear the body down in the mind and it gets to a place where, you know, it's just, again, exhaustion just is one of those methods. So, and that's because of our biology, you know, cause we have, we expend a lot of energy and, you know, our mind gets tired and our bodies get tired and we have to learn to rely on something else. And that something else is often what you find, you know, like kind of, if you start to develop uh, kind of a big mind relationship. Yeah. So yeah, sports are definitely like surfing is a great example of um, not quite having the exhaustion thing, but they talk about sports and athletic experience. A lot of the ways like climbers do and um, like ultra runners do, there's mm -hmm. a real connection to a medium, right? You know, and there's a real adaptation aspect to the way they talk about like surfing and there's a, it's a real literature and um, climbers have it too. And, you know, runners talk about being in landscapes, you know, and so there's something about out. I'm going to say it. I, I think there's something privileged about outdoor fields or outdoor arena, not fields, square fields, but outdoor arenas when we're in a medium and we're able to adapt that medium and we ourselves are a medium and the experiences in between those two mediums. And I think that's a privileged space. That's, that's not in everything. Yeah. You know, I, I do think it, that environment matters a lot when we're talking, you know, and connecting back to those larger parts of ourselves, you know, if we want to put a lens of spirituality mm -hmm. on it, you know, nature, um, is a, is a theme that is ongoing for mm -hmm. millennium. Like it's just, yeah, it's, it's not new. There. It's yeah. not new. Nope. Um, we, we know for fact that, you know, being in nature is a way for us to be more connected to ourselves, to feel like we're more connected to the universe or larger things larger than ourselves. Right. Um, I don't think it's a necessarily a mystery why yeah, correct. runners tend to like feel, you know, who have gone deep feel like, you know, running hundreds was, you know, therapy for me. Like this helped me overcome, you know, so many yeah. challenges I had in my life or because I think a lot of the environmental factors, the exhaustion, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. a lot of these things are kind of coming together in a confluence that, does support some of this greater transformation and growth. And, you know, I don't know, it depends on what your personal take is, you know, for, for me, yep. I'm, I'm pursuing, you know, that growth and transformation and that, you know, sport is my vehicle for that. Um, it's going to be different for everybody. Um, but I do find it, I don't think there's any mistake, you know, when you're connect like ski mountaineers, surfers climber you know i think of tom tommy caldwell on the dawn wall for yeah, you right. know all those days like yep. just chipping away you know like courtney DeWalter climbing there just chipping away chipping away and i mean that really um i got to listen to him speak about that mm. and it was just like a really cool experience to to hear about you know how deep you know um you know meru is another great documentary so good where it's they great just isn't go it so deep yeah. and talks a lot about the human spirit and the connectedness that we have you know if we just allow ourselves to be in those positions um which takes big minds because the small mind you know wants to keep us small you know we can't dream big we we, we don't have a personal meru we could never achieve yeah you know something like that for ourselves um you know i think that's you know a big a big limitation of you know today's 
popular culture or just the the ethos of being a, a person in the world and in 2024 um kind of lends itself to this this small mind small way of self-limiting beliefs um i think your book really gives us some practical mm. ways to think about you know expanding our understanding of who we are who we really are and what we're really capable of which is kind of to me i'm like well you have to explore that if you want to explore your potential as an athlete yeah the two are totally connected like Exactly. I would just say right on, like there's, there's no way you're going to be a top performer or I would say consistently top performer that is also motivated and has a deep love without doing this work. There's yeah. no way, like you, you can win like a couple, like, or, you know, so you can get away with some shit, you know, definitely like, but like, it won't be consistent and your career won't be that long, you know? And, and the studies have shown, like there are studies on deep motivation in athletes and they talk about this and, you know, that type of, connection to your sport is, is what's going to sustain you like over time, you know? Um, so, and you have to do the work. Like you can't, here's, here's what I always say to people like, okay, what do I do? You know, when I, when I'm about to climb and I have all this like stuff going on, what do I do? And it's like, man, like you're way too late. Like yeah. you're way too late. You, this needs to be part of your life as an athlete. This needs to be something you do all the time, you know, cause it won't only make you a better athlete. It'll make you a better per aware person. Yeah. And like, what the fuck are we doing? as human <laughs> beings like are we really here to like run a fast marathon like like really like when you think about it like when you die is like is that gonna be your thing like man you just you just ran that 10k so, <laughs> like that's ridiculous right i'm always like you know it's gonna say on my gravestone tj david was really good at work <laughs> i'm like shit man that's yeah, terrible it's terrible like we gotta do better right we gotta yeah. like understand why we're here and I, we don't even need to talk spirituality like yeah i'm not talking about god i'm not talking about spirit i'm just saying like just like why are we here we're here to like get to know ourselves really well and you're never going to like perform anything at your best unless you do the social interactions be a good husband be a good dad be a good son, you know, like, unless you have that figured out, you know? <clears throat> so maybe in closing, we could just leave the listeners with two or three things that they could do outside of reading this book, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, is, this is required reading. I, I haven't read anything <clears throat> that puts, that puts a lens on performance quite like this. Um, so again, this gets my full recommendation for awesome. whatever right that on. is worth out there in the world. Um, but what are like two or three practical things athletes can do to get started on this process of connecting with themselves on a deeper level in order to access mm -hmm. the potential that they really have? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So I'll give one that that's kind of make, might make people uncomfortable is um, stop thinking any of what you do matters to anyone else. You know, no one cares really. You need to like, start like thinking about the person maybe at the grocery store that you run into, like, and then think about like their brother, your performance has no effect on their life. Like it's called cosmic insignificance therapy, right? Stop thinking of the self-importance of your performances and achievements. Just like you gotta, you gotta get rid of it. Like we think, you know, there is some kind of weird legacy of immortalism around athletics and athletes. You know, we think like we're doing something important, but we're not, you know, of course, like we're inspiring other people and all that. And that's great. But when it comes down to it, it's, you need to, you need to like face it and it doesn't matter. So like, just, just 
try to really inhabit that space that nobody cares. And when you do that, things will shift and you'll start to like think about what you do differently. So that's like number one. Great. Um, and the second one, again, is really practical is stop caring about your successes. Like walk away from that. Stop priding yourself on them. The second you do something that you're proud of, walk away from that thought. You know, don't indulge that thought. Don't let yourself get pumped up. Don't, you know, if you need to shut up about it, stop posting, stop telling your friends about it. Just like try to live in a world where any of your achievements um, don't matter. And what's going to happen is that eventually your failures won't matter as well, because you've, the, the easier one is to work on your success. It's a lot harder to get rid of like the feeling of failures. Yeah. So I think that's practical. Um, the sec, I mean, you know, number three, I would say is make it like, if you need to build into your daily structure, a time when you just check in with yourself, okay, like, you know, why am I doing this? You know, like, why, why am I doing like, you know, and, and what are the fantasies around what you're doing? Um, what are your, you know, what are your motivations are? And just really just like checking in and, and it could be the obvious thing could be like thinking about anxiety, you know, because that's a powerful one, right. Or fear. Right. So when I'm about to do a hard climbing project, like sometimes it's very common for climbers the night before to not sleep. You know, like you can't sleep because you got like your nerves, you know? And so for a climber, that would be okay. You want to catch that the night before and be like, all right, like why am like, why would I lose sleep over something that's happening tomorrow? So what is like the true nature of that anxiety? And so what you're doing is like you're developing a daily check-in system. Some people journal, some people meditate, some people sit there with their coffee in the morning and just be like, all right, like where's my brain at with my athletic fantasies or lack thereof at the moment? And start to develop in a pattern. And when you start to do that, you know, you'll be, you'll, you'll get to know yourself a lot better because I can tell you most athletes do not understand the what, where, and why of what they're doing. Yeah. You know, I can just tell you, I like, I've been around these circles my whole life. I've been one, I've been there, you know? And, and so what that does is it allows you that when it comes race day, you're not having to like scramble and like do all these weird last minute hacks for a good performance. You know, because that's mm -hmm. where the literature is. The literature is like 10 things to do on race day or, you know, 10 things to do the week before your race. Like, that's great and that's good, but like, that's not sustainable. You know, the real thing is to not have to do any of those. Right. You know, yeah. the real thing is to just be able to be like, I don't need to have this weird like little thing that I do to calm my nerves and lie to myself. Like the real thing is to just be fully on top and to be able to just have that even performance however you want it. And, um, so yeah, I mean, the checking in is huge and um, it, it's going to improve like life at all levels, you know, um, at all levels. So that would be three good takeaways perhaps. Heck yeah. Well, thanks Francis. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks TJ. Great. It's been so good talking to someone out there in, in the field thinking about and performing really high. It's been a real pleasure, man. This was just such a, a super fun conversation. Thanks for making it happen. Thanks for writing this book. This is gonna serve a lot of athletes out there. I know it. Um, all right, guys, if you have any feedback for a future episode, you're looking support in your running or endurance journey, you know how to get in touch, microcosm-coaching.com, microcosmcoaching at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. All right, everyone. Take care. Thanks, yeah. TJ. Thanks, Francis. Yep. <clears throat>